Hello and welcome to the Synthetic Dreams podcast, a show where I interview musicians from the world of electronic music. My guest this week is Graham Massey from Electronic Act 808 State. Massey formed a group with Martin Price and Gerald Simpson in Manchester back in 1987 and they released their debut album New Build in September 1988. Andrew Barker joined the group in 1989 and is in the current lineup along with Massey. 808 State's style has been labelled as techno and house and the band are regarded as a pioneer of the acid house sound. The group, named after Massey's favourite drum machine, the Roland TR-808, released an album in 2019 called Transmission Suite, which is a brilliant record and I recommend anybody go out and uh, buy it. An album which was well received by both fans and the music press. On the show, Massey talks about the early rave scene in Manchester, what it was like performing on Top of the Pops, and his time working with Bjork. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast via Spotify, Deezer or iTunes, and please follow our Twitter page. You'll find the link on our website. Thanks as always for listening. So I'm delighted to be joined by Gray and Massey on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. So I think I'll start with a sort of question I've been asking a lot of musicians on the podcast recently and just sort of how you're coping with the, the current weird situation that we're finding ourselves in and if, you know, the kind of things you'd be doing to keep busy. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time I'm working from home naturally, you know, so I've had many years of kind of working from home. So to me, it's not so different. No. It's kind of um, um, when when you're doing music, you know, you sort of it's very internal anyway, you know. So uh, the other side that's missing is the sort of social aspect of music. You know, I really enjoy playing music with other people, and uh, I think it's probably the first time since I was about sixteen that I haven't done the practice of playing music with people, you know, because I've been doing that all my life and it's really important as a kind of balance, really. So it's, I always see it as a, uh, almost like a health practice, you know, it's kind of a, to, to um, you know, it's like a, a, my form of uh, balance, you know. So, so, yeah, that's been odd, you know, to, to have a year off from it, you know, so unusual, you know. So, um, so you've basically, so whereabouts, where were you when the first lockdown last year? Had you had any live dates planned or anything? You know, oh, when- yeah, we, we were literally, you know, almost to the day of lockdown is when our tour was supposed to start. You know, the, the timing was just spot on. And uh, there's a lot of momentum that goes with setting the tour up and you know the record that came before it uh, a lot of people involved a lot a lot of uh, things have to line up so and that's the that's the biggest impact really is that that stopping of the momentum because that momentum could have taken three years you know from from doing the last record to putting it out and setting the tour up you know I think we did we did a tour in is it 2018 which was our 30th yeah. anniversary tour and um yeah so everything else has been since then has been lining up to do to do this tour of the new record um 
so yeah it's just that feeling of like you know that momentum is kind of lost a little bit you know yeah i think the last one of the last gigs we did was the blue dot festival that um uh, that that summer was that 2019 yeah 19 yeah. Mm. yeah yeah so uh we had a lot of uh stuff set up for festivals in summer last year as well so some of those are now reappearing and there's a possibility that uh, well in, in fact Kendall calling is going ahead at a reduced capacity so that's one of the first ones we're doing uh, we're doing deck mantle in Holland if that's allowed if we can if we're allowed to yeah. might have to get on a ferry or something you know to go and do that one um that, that's a really good festival, really pleased with doing that one. And then there's um, one on the Isle of Wight. There's a, there's a few coming for August. August looks busy for us, you know. Okay. Uh, so, and then the rescheduled tour is at the end of September into November. So it's actually quite a busy year lining up if Touchwood, everything is allowed, yeah. It's certainly looking more hopeful now, isn't it? Now the vaccine yeah. rollout is getting more yeah. people, more people vaccinated, which is good. Which yeah, as as an as an oldie, I'll I'll have my jabs by then. You know, so, <laughs> um, I'm waiting for my second one at the moment. So. Oh, at least you've had your first, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I feel I mean, a lot more comfortable about getting in a van. It'd be so nice to be able to, to see people again, wouldn't it, and to go to these concerts and festivals. Um, yeah. Could you touch upon the Blue Dot Festival? Because that's, that's, I was at that performance, actually, at the Blue Dot Festival. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking how... It, I have fond memories of that set because it just felt very euphoric. Everybody was really up for it. One, one in the morning, everybody had probably seen Craftwork, who were, who were on the headliners, and then coming to see yeah. you guys. And um, I don't know how it was for you. I mean, it, it seemed to me, because I go every year to this festival, that it, it seems perfect for you guys, you know, with the whole science thing, sci-fi. Yeah. Did you feel the same, was it? Did it feel like a good festival? Oh, yeah, very much. It's uh, almost like a bit of a spiritual yeah. home, that place for me. I used to get taken there as a sort of nine and ten-year-old because I, I was such a space freak when... They were. I was born in 1960, so I'd be nine when they did the moon landings, and I was... I've still collected all the newspapers from that period. And mm. obviously, Jodrell Bank, we felt that was our, um, you know, spot that was part of the, the whole thing, you know, because a lot yeah. of the space race came through that telescope, you know, from Sputnik to, through to the Apollo things. So, yeah, but an amazing kind of... Uh, um, connection with that place, you know. I actually did um, a, f a soundtrack to a film that we projected on that dish uh, a couple of years earlier as well. Um, there was a thing called Jodrell Bank Calling, and it was um, it was kind of celebrating Stanley Kubrick's visit to Jodrell Bank yes. when he was researching 2001. And uh, my friend, Michael England, who makes videos uh, for many people, but he makes videos for us, he got access to a uh, really high quality print of, um, I say print, uh, digital um, file of 2001 with permission to re-edit it and remap it to the dish. And um, there was a, we made this sort of documentary and... and um, 
I did the soundtrack to it. So that, that was an amazing experience there. But also going back further to about probably the late 90s, uh, I had a friend who was um, managing D-Ream, which was Brian Cox's group. Yes. And they were doing a video in the dish, of roller skating around the dish. And uh, she knew what a nut I was for Jodrell Bank. She says, oh, come down, we're we're doing this. And we, uh, we got to go up in the dish and, you know, just wobble about in it for an afternoon. And uh, from that, I got engaged in a project with Patrick Moore at UMIST, you know, the Science University in Manchester. We did a musical event for six formers um, looking into going to that university where Patrick Moore played the xylophone and I did a, a piece that was based on the pulsar signals from Jodrell Bank uh, made into a piece of music. If you, if you take the pulsar signals and speed them up, you can make organ tones. And if you slow them down, it sounds like African drumming. So there's, it, it's on YouTube, actually. If you go Masonic's pulsars, yeah, the piece is on YouTube. Um, but I was really pleased with that piece. It was, uh, you know, it, it was a great uh, sort of little project that we did, you know. With, yeah. That's amazing. That just sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> So we have this reconnection with the place every few years, you know, which is, um, yeah. which is know, great. I'd love to see you back there. I mean, I could imagine something like, I don't know, your the tool shed night that you used to do would be good at, at uh, Blue Dot, do like a tool shed. Yeah, set. yeah. I, I can did, imagine I that. I did there when Gary Newman was on a couple of years, a few years back. And... Um, I've, I've, I've forgotten the connection now. But, um, oh, we were supposed to DJ there on the main stage, uh, just uh, ahead of Bjork, when Bjork, Bjork was supposed to be doing it last year, wasn't she? That's right, yeah. And uh, we were going to do the DJ slot just before Bjork goes on on, on the main stage. So that, that would have been great. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure she's still doing it, actually. I know she's mm-hmm. doing those orchestral... Uh, like an orchestral thing in Iceland this summer. So maybe it's been delayed again by a year. Oh, well, because they're not doing it this year, are they? They've announced Blue Dot's not, not happening. Oh, no. so, I've really so, missed it. I, hopefully she'll get a book for that. Yeah, yeah hopefully you'll, you'll get to DJ. Because obviously, um, and obviously the connection with Bjork with the oops from the, you know, your second album, wasn't it, back in ninety. 90- one is it yeah yeah so what how did you meet her and how did you sort of hook up to do this track well yeah she she rang us up she um heard some of our early material like new build and pre um new build and quadrostate and they were playing that on their tour bus all the time and when she decided that she was going to go off on a solo thing she was looking for people to make beats and she literally rang up uh, while we were at a studio in Manchester. And it's like, oh, there's someone from Iceland on the phone for you. And I said, like, <laughs> you know, you just thought, how many people do you, you know? <laughs> Not the shop. Yeah, who, who's it going to be? And, it, and it, sure enough, it was her. Wow. We met up at a TV show in London. We were doing The Word, you know, that um, Channel 4 programme. Oh, yes. She, I came, remember the she word. came down to that because she was in London. Uh, her record label was in London. We met, we met there. And then 
she was about to fly back to Iceland and uh, we suddenly phoned up the next morning and, and went like, do you fancy doing something on our record? And uh, she cancelled the flight and came up to Manchester. And that, that she did two tracks on XL um, and both of them really quite spontaneous. She was only here for a couple of days at that point. So it was really spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as a consequence of that, she, she came back and, and stayed, uh, she came and stayed at my house quite a few times that year. Um, we did the GMEX um, concert yes. after the Excel thing. Well, that, at that point we were working on some music and my friend had a studio in a terraced house in um, Fallowfield, near Main Road, the, foot, the old football ground. Yeah. Just a two up, two down terraced house, but he was a bachelor, so it was like a studio, you know, uh, in, inside. And um, we spent the weekend there and we wrote Army of Me um, and Modern Things. And that was before Debut came out. And then um, they were left off that album and then they appeared um, a bit more fancied up. Uh, you know, gone into a bigger studio by that point. And uh, they appeared on post. So, yeah, that, that was uh, um, brilliant, you know. Because I, I worked a little bit on debut, but sometimes it gets quoted on Wikipedia wrong that I, I had something to do with debut. But I was around when the, on some of the sessions early on, uh, but it's I did two tracks on post, you know, and... Not uh, Nelly Hooper did most most of it. Yeah, yeah, and because um, we touched upon, um, of course, new build and yeah. the Delta was released. I believe is it September? Is it nineteen eighty eight? So it was that sort of tail end of the, the second summer of love, or what they they called in the press. And I wonder yeah, if you look. look <laughs> I think we recorded it in early. Uh, probably about January, February, 88. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we were actually doing gigs and things before then. We, we were a live band before we were a studio band. Right. We, we had a, a collective of hip-hop bands um, called the Hit Squad. And <laughs> that was about four groups. And we used to do gigs at the Boardwalk in Manchester or, or we'd get in a minibus and go to like you know, Bolton and do a gig above a pod pub and stuff like that and uh, in that group was a guy called Gerald and MC Tunes they were a group you know he was the beats and MC Tunes was the rapper and the spin masters which is Darren and Andrew from 808 later joined 808 and they had a MC called MC Shine who's still around doing making music uh and, you know, it was all about rapping and hip hop. In fact, if you listen to some early, that carried on. If you listen to some early 808 state gigs, there's one on Mixcloud, I think, of us playing the Ritz. And, and uh, that is a typical thing. That's a typical gig of that of 88, where uh, one minute were 808 state and Gerald's in 808 state. And then because uh, he's got, Voodoo Ray out, he's doing a guy called Gerald set, you know, next to it. So he, you know, literally turns his hat backwards and now he's a guy <laughs> called Gerald kind of thing. And some of the people, you know, they, they've got rapping on that 
his set and there's rapping on our set and it, it you know it's really quite organic and unformed it, you know there's no tunes per se you know there's no um it's mostly improvised and and that's the way we started uh, when we did gigs back then we didn't have oh we're going to play this tune then we're going to play that tune it was literally machines started up and it organically just took off yeah uh, in a it, improvised way with a, a, a system of equipment, you know, yeah. quite quite a lot of equipment. So quite often we'd be set up at the wrong end of the room as well, near the mixing desk. Yeah, yeah. So people sometimes didn't even know where to look. But wow. back in the rave thing, it didn't really matter where the stage was or the audience. It, it was a communion. It wasn't um, us and them, you know, it was, it yeah. was, a, com a communion of people and the mu whether the music was live or not I don't think a lot of people understood that it was live sometimes you know? <laughs> just having uh, a good time yeah well they probably actually if they heard it they'd probably understand that it was live because it probably was kind of you know, quite chaotic you know but um some of those tapes exist uh, we put a an album out on reflex uh in the early 2000s, which was a collection of early demos and uh, offshoots of that period, you know, a little snapshot of 1988. And on that is our first gig at the boardwalk um, uh, when we were called the Thermo Kings for, for an evening. And the track is called Thermo Kings. You'll probably find that on YouTube. But it, it's, it's pure improvised, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, if you listen to it, you'll understand it. You know, it, it's funny. I watched some some YouTube thing of um, somebody pointed us to this YouTube thing of some people reviewing New Build, some youngsters who who, <laughs> uh, oh, wow. who who really got the wrong end of the stick with it. And I can understand that how, how you know you know it, how you can get it wrong. But at that point in time. What it was was a, a take on sort of Chicago house, but with a very sort of British left field, uh, almost a post punky kind of uh, leaning on it, you know. And um, you know, the we it was in quite odd time signatures at times, you know, and the editing was all a big part of it. You know, we'd do big jams and then chop them into edits, and uh, it was again, like a different approach, you know, because a lot of the Chicago house stuff was super minimal. Um, I mean, I love that stuff. I love its kind of simplicity and its, its rawness. Um, but our stuff was a lot denser. It had a lot more layers to it. We had, you know, uh, it, it was really dense, you know. Yeah. And what was the, what was the sort of rave scene like around, Manchester around that time. I bet that was must have been really sort of great to be a part of, you know, the scene in Manchester around '88. I can only imagine how great yeah. that was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to describe because it was uh, uh, it almost went from you know small fires to a raging furnace quite quickly, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, we were doing some warehouse um, parties in 87 into 88 uh, with, you know, 25, 30 people. 
small basements, one red light bulb and a sound system, that kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of that activity. Obviously, the Hacienda was slightly on a different level. You know, you, you forget that, that the, the Hacienda was like a gig venue most of the time. You know, it, it had more of a, you know, bands would come and play and uh, it was a big space. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we used to go there from the get-go because, like, I was in a, another group before then. Um, uh, one of the guys in the group was a pot collector at the Hacienda on when it opened, you know. So, and we were on, this group's called Biting Tongues. We were on Factory Records. We got a get-in free card because we were on Factory. So we were there all the time, you know. We were there. It was like a social club for us, you know. Yeah. But it was big and empty and drafty and cold. And yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing was happening for years, apart from Friday nights was all about uh, a different it was about serious dance music on a Friday night it was kind of there was all these sort of um, dance troops that would turn up I say there, there was one or two you know it wasn't, wasn't well it had that sense of uh, artistic dance about it and people would let them have the dance floor for certain periods of the night. And they played a lot of Latin music. Oh. They played a lot of, uh, you know, street soul stuff, electro. Uh, it was quite an eclectic mix. And then Acid House kind of appeared amongst that mix. Mm. Uh, there'd be like half an hour or, or then an hour of Acid House. And uh, that's when I loved that, when that happened, because it was kind of an abstract music that didn't sort of reference the past too much. It was more about alienation and, and just a wonkiness that appealed to um, somebody like me that was more coming from electronics of, if you go back into the early eighties, electronic music in Britain would be things like Cabaret Voltaire and Throbbing Gristle. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a big history, of, well, New Order as well, you know, and there's, there's a big history of uh, electronic music coming from the counterculture yeah. uh, that wasn't Americanized and it wasn't that kind of pure um, hedonism, you know, it had, had a different message in it. So it almost felt like these two things coming together, you know, it wasn't referencing gospel, it wasn't referencing... Um, uh, the past so much it was very futuristic it was very true uh, um, true. almost related to some of the experimental early electronic music of that we kind of grew up with you know in, when you talk about the you know radiophonic workshop and um you know some of the pioneers of uh, early synthesizer stuff uh, I mean, it was pretty interested in synthesizers, but you could never afford them, you know. Mm. And that 87, 88 was a time when um, this thing called MIDI appeared, which is a new protocol for synthesizers that talk to each other. So it meant that the old technologies were suddenly in the second-hand shops really cheap. And, and, and then suddenly we had access to synthesizers, which were like so out of our budget um, before then. <laughs> So we, 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 we started to sort of collect all these unwanted synthesizers and, and started to find ways of joining them up. And of course, all that Roland equipment, like the little 303s and the 101s, and the, it, that joined neatly as a system together. 
In fact, we'd messed around with that system uh, quite a few years earlier with the with the biting tongues, and um, we had a support group called Yak Boy. He was actually our sound engineer, and he he was. Uh, in fact, you'll find his three hundred three on looking from a hilltop. I think that's his uh, machine on that record oh. by Section Twenty Five because he was from Blackpool and um, he did little sets, electronic sets, one-man shows. That was a thing in the early 80s. You know, there was another guy that we used to, used to come and do gigs with us. It was a one-man show with synthesizers. And that, that idea was kind of born much earlier in things like Tangerine Dream and Klaus Schultz. And, yeah. You know, it was around as an idea, right. but it wasn't popular culture. Right. And the difference... In, in that hacienda culture, it was, it was a dress-up, Friday night, <laughs> social situation. It wasn't about, we are weird, we are synthesizers. You know, it, 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 it is about, uh, you know, the Friday night social and the coming together. And the, you know, there was a different attitude there. You know, most of clubbing life in Manchester before then was really about, yeah, you couldn't wear trainers, you had to almost wear a tie to get in a club or all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, there was this protocol of night clubbing that uh, kind of kept a lot of people out of it. You know, certainly the working class lads were uh, either they dressed up. I mean, if I, if I talk to my older brother about night clubbing, he has quite a, it's quite interesting to talk to him because he was a mod. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was in some ways has similarities with our scene, you know, the staying up all night. The, um, you know, the dedication to American black music, you know, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, this idea of it being a bit of a working class lads weekend, you know, to live at large. And it certainly played out that way in 88 because uh, the, you had the Hacienda and I always associated that with a kind of like it, it it went along with the style mags of the time, like the face and ID and all that kind of thing. So everyone that went to the Hacienda was a bit more dressing up, a bit more kind of sophisticated, or at least that was the image. But there was a club where Darren and Andrew DJed the Saturday night called the Thunderdome in Manchester that was uh, much more uh, younger crowd. Everyone almost uh, wore all these baggy, the baggy clothes and everything, and it was it was so much harder and uh, like a sort of rougher vibe. The music was rougher. The music was faster and harder. And uh, that was an important club in Manchester. Where was that? That's where we tested a lot of our record at, records out. It's, it was up Cheat Mill Road. Oh. Um, I think it was Cheat Mill Road. One of those roads that lead, leads north of the city. Uh, a place called the Osborne Club. Oh, wow. And that used to be a roller skating disco. And I actually went and saw Joy Division there with ACR in uh, about, ooh, must have been early 80s. Mm. And I'd never heard of that place until they played there. And, you know, it's kind of, we never went north in the city, hardly ever, you know. Uh, <laughs> Didn't need to. <laughs> so many good clubs. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I had a bit of a history that place. But it was rough, you know. They, I mean, I remember once we were... I was waiting for them to turn up on a Sunday. We had a session at the studio in town and uh, 
you know, they, they were late, which, and then it, they, they were really late. And it's like, no one was answering. No, we didn't have mobile phones then, you know. You, you know, no one was, knew you ring their home, no one knew where they were. And they were in the siege. Like, the, there was like some doorman takeover thing where they were actually locked in the building and there was some sort of armed door business going off and they were in there for like, you know, over 12 hours in the siege, you know, and it's like, it's a pretty bonkers club, you know, with a, cool. yeah. But, you know, the Hacienda had equal problems. You know, oh, definitely. Back, back then, as, as, as there was money to be made and it wasn't nothing to do with the breweries anymore, if you know what I mean. What's your memories of Tony Wilson? Oh, well, yeah, well, Tony Wilson, he uh, kind of first met him because we had this group, Biting Tongues. We, we actually made a film uh, with Northwest Arts Money. I say we, um, we had a singer who wrote scripts. He was a, more like a writer than a singer. He wrote books. He worked in publishing. He was really like a William Burroughs kind of character. He wrote this script. Uh, the saxophone player was a filmmaker and uh, he got a, a grant to make this film. I acted in it and we ran out, we, we, we filmed it at swimming baths in Manchester. We filmed it at Harper Hay Baths, Victoria Baths mm. um, and Sheffield Royal Infirmary, which had just shut down. So we had a whole hospital, a aband whole abandoned hospital oh, to make this film. Uh, that was quite right. spooky. Yeah. And um, so we made this film and ran out of money. And Howard, uh, Tony Wilson lived up the road from Howard and uh, knew they knew each other from the pub and he was talking about it. And Tony had a look at it and went like, oh, just wrote, he, he, like, I'll bankroll it. Because they were setting up a video label called Icon yes. at the time. Yeah. And he had some video editing equipment, which was brand new and very expensive, uh, in his basement. And um, that grew into a, like a VHS label. You know, they used to sell VHS copies of Joy Division gigs. I think it was a fall compilation. Um, we did... Um, a, com you know, a video compilation, but they put this film out. It's called Fever House, and we did a soundtrack, uh, which is FAC 104, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's how we met Tony. But later on, when we were doing 808, Tony turned up, uh, same, we're doing these gigs in above pubs in Bolton. He turned up at one. <laughs> Declared that we were the new Sex Pistols, <laughs> Brilliant. which was a bit odd. <laughs> and then, wow. uh, quite soon after that, he he put us on his program. He had this program on a uh, late night program called The Other Side of Midnight, <laughs> and we'd literally only just done Pacific State. I've seen a clip of it. It's not on YouTube. This one, but I have seen uh, a clip where we go on The Other Side of Midnight and play Pacific State. And it hasn't got a name yet. We've not even titled it. It was that new. Wow. And, uh, and he was complaining over the fact that we hadn't registered with the Musicians Union or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, it would have been on sooner. And so, and then we were on, uh, we were on, was on with Gerald once and this guy called Ed Barton doing a track called Born in the North. 
And then we were on, um, what was the other thing we were on? They did a rave on a Sunday afternoon that they put on that programme. Uh, Gerald was on that. Um, that sounds good. Uh, cool. Yeah, so they did, they really sort of fed that rave thing, you know, yeah. early on, you know. They really they, they, they went, they were out and about, they were looking at everything and they, they gave us access to uh, that programme. And uh, with no track record whatsoever. And of course, the other big champion of what we were doing back then was John Peel yeah. on Radio One. You know, it was like, you know, we put New Build out, John Peel played the hell out of it, you know, and that's how it established itself. You know, Amazing. it wasn't through clubs because you'd never get to play that record in a club, you know. Yeah. Did you get to meet John Peel? Eh? Did you meet John Peel? Did you get to meet? John Peel yeah. At the time, yeah, yeah, I did because I, I was running a just before about around about eighty seven. I was running a cafe on Alden Street. How I got to meet the guys from Eastern Block, Martin, who was in eight oh eight. I had the cafe across the road from their shop, so they used to come in for their brews and dinner time. And also, it was like a sort of drop in centre. There was a girl called Alison uh, who used to bring. John, she brought, John Peel would come up about once every two months, do all the record shops, and he'd hold a clinic in my cafe, and people would come down and give him records, and, uh, you know, he was really, again, really doing his homework, really on the ball, he'd go to Piccadilly Records, go to Eastern Block, do all the shops, meet local bands and all that kind of thing, so... Yeah, he was really on the ground, you know. Amazing. So I remember giving him new builds, you know, and gave it, you know, there and then when it was a white label, and that's why he was playing it, you know. So amazing. In fact, uh, Pacific State started off as a Peel session. He, you know, a lot. It was like, oh, do I do a session? And we were like, oh well, you know, it's. I don't know about going to BBC, BBC Made Available and doing the thing that we were doing then, you know, because it wasn't a band, you know, it was a production unit. So to hand it over to BBC engineers seemed a bit alien to us. And we were like, oh, can we do it at our place? And he was kind of like, he understood the idea, but the unions wouldn't allow it. So we started the session, no one, uh, and then we had to sort of find a way of paying for it. You know? <laughs> uh, so it sat on the shelf for a bit, you know, it started off. That's how it started off, and then it kind of sat on the shelf uh, for a few months before it was kind of um, transformed into the thing that we know now. Yeah, because I, I think um, when I first heard you guys all on those, do you remember those Deep Heat compilations? You used to have um, a compilation called Deep Heat around '89 onwards in the '90s. So I think I first heard that track on there, and obviously, seeing you on top of the pops was a massive thing for me. I probably was yeah. Because I was too young at the time to go to these raves or whatever. I would yeah. buy these compilations or people would get me these old rave tapes and stuff. So I was living it in my bedroom, dreaming, yeah. like being in Manchester, but never being able to go. Well, yeah, well, that was one interesting thing when we did a GMEX concert. We did one GMEX concert with the Happy Mondays, where we were the support band. And then other bands from Manchester, it was a big badge of honour if you could fill the GMEX. I remember in Spiral Carpets doing it. Um, James. No, I think that was the 
tenth summer thing. Anyway, but yeah, we 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 thought, can we do the G mix? You know, just at the height of when uh, XL came out, big risk, you know, and, and we did it. And uh, but the reason it was full was that it, we we were playing at eight o'clock in the evening, which meant it was all age groups. So it was like the first, one of the first raids that, that, that allowed that younger age group in. Fantastic. And I think a, big, a big event. And it had a sense of a rave because it was a big place, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it felt really culturally like an event. Uh, we made a video of it, actually, and it's on a thing called OptiBook. And um, the, they're interviewing kids outside the the venue before they're going in and when they're coming out. And we, lo- we actually lost quite a lot of the footage of the gig. So it's actually more about the crowd, this film. And uh, it's quite fascinating how young they are, you know, and uh, that the, these youngsters talking about the rave thing and not having access to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I get that thing where, where everyone really wanted... <laughs> they could feel this thing going on in the country, but a lot of kids were held back on it. Uh, yeah. And I met loads of people, you know, that got snuck in by their older brothers and stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, that those Top of the Pops performances, I still enjoy watching them now and again. It just looked like you were having a lot of fun. I mean, were they fun to be on Top of the Pops, was it good yeah, I must admit, it was a thrill to be on Top of the Pops, having grown up with Top of the Pops. You know, it's kind of, you know, we weren't going to say no to it, even though it was perhaps a little uncool. And, you know, it's um, on, on one level kind of thing. But, you know, you'd be daft not to because it's shifted so many records, you know, and it made you part of the culture. And I think, you know, the thing I'm proud of most is, like, it's some of the weirdest records ever on Top of the Pops, you know. <laughs> You know, to, to get that counterculture onto Top of the Pops felt like a, another kind of moment. If you go back to the 70s and you'll see odd, they've, they've got odd little nuggets, something like King Crimson playing Top of the Pops or something. Or, um, you know, but mostly it's drivel, you know, a lot on Top of the Pops. It's amazing when you look back on those programmes and how what the culture was back then yeah. and what you were... Uh, trying to change, you know, when you see it all mashed together like that and they've got all these novelty records on or things like Jive Bunny and you're up against things like that and you're you're trying to do proper, uh, you know, you're not thinking like, I'm going to do this pop single, you're not thinking like, I'm going to do the perfect dance record even, you know what I mean? You're doing some kind of, you're reacting to the culture that you're living in. And there were so many great records coming out every week from all over the world that it was sort of like you were you were never sure of the buzzed up energy from those records, you know. And you hear things like Little Louie records coming out, and uh, you know um, Marshall Jefferson and you know Mr. Fingers and things like that. It's just it's, all the Detroit stuff, you know. It's, wow. it's just amazing. Every every, every week's like, oh yeah, that. And it's like, oh, have you heard this? You know, it's like such a... Yeah. Of course, we had the record shop as well. So, you know, uh, it was just flowing through that record shop. 
and we had a radio program uh, that Darren and Andrew uh, hosted on a Tuesday night on um, Sunset FM. It was like a sort of community station, but everyone tuned into that program. Everyone taped that program, and it was like literally what was new in Eastern Bloc that week. You know, it was almost like a perfect storm. It's like it flowed in through the record shop, flowed out of the radio program. People turn up at the record shop. You know, it was just. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had loads of local new thing. If anyone was doing anything in dance music back then, we had them on the show. You know, amazing. Uh, uh, what a great it was, time! It was like a pirate show, but before you know, the, you know, it was it was kind of legal. They had a proper antenna. People used to gather in car parks in Oldham. You know, like, like you could pick it up in the hills around Manchester. Wow. And uh, so you know, I've met countless people who bang on about the radio program and how important it was back then. And in fact, you can get all if you go on a eight to eight state dot com. There's a, a section called Sounds, and there's a whole uh, archive of those radio programs that if anyone wants to go back down I'll have to down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you, no, I'd love to hear that. You're really in bed for like six months. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. Good yeah. for when I'm doing a dog walk. Yeah, love to get them on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, can you can you remember who you uh, played on Top of the Pops? Any other bands that were playing on the same episodes? Was there any funny like uh, encounters, or was it very kind of in and out? Yeah, I, rem- yeah, I remember that Lombarda group. Uh, oh, yeah. Kyoma, I think they were called. Every time we were doing Pacific State, they were on. It was almost like a, it's like a bit of you know, yeah, rivalry that. from each side of the studio. Uh, when I heard that track, it reminds me of that time. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember seeing you know people like De- Debbie Harry oh, wow. in, in the canteen. Um, Jimmy good. Somerville used to. I think Jimmy Somerville had a bed there. He was like on every week, wasn't he? In some communards or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he left the building. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, some of the, I remember that that week, the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays were on. We, we, were, we were on the week before. And I think this, the spiral carpets had just been on. But I remember being in Dry Bar on Oldham Street when they were on. It was almost like an event. They threw an event for when they were on top of the pops, a big telly set up. And I remember that being a sort of peak Manchester moment where uh, there was a bit of a party going on in, on Oldham Street that night. And yeah, I mean, it just seemed amazing that, you know, we'd almost like taken over the building. Do you know, do, do you know what I mean? It was like... Um suddenly the, the lunatics were running the asylum for a yeah. while. So. You touched upon um, in spirals because you, you had to, um, who's sadly no longer with us, Craig in drumming for you, didn't you, on oh. some live shows. I remember seeing you with, with, with him on stage with you, which was, I think... Uh, that was that in Stevenson Square. In yes, Seattle. and you had to stop yeah. early, which yeah. I was... I was so gutted about. I was like, "What?" It's like we're stopping now. I yeah, know I've not- got some, I've got some photos of that, and I never noticed him being on stage at this time. I think he was. I'd love to see them on the decks where Darren was at, at, uh, at we, the back we, of the stage. There, I was, I, and his kids, his kids are all over the stage as well. And that's then, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And then there was like everyone's kids all over the stage. That was like. Um, 
Yeah, that was a good gig, though. Was it uh, Paddy Steer in Paddy Steer in the band as well? And um, yeah, we've had some amazing musicians in the band. Simeon Mobile Disco, yeah, yeah. Uh, James right. Ford from Simeon Mobile Disco, who's yeah, the, like he's, he's turned into one of Britain's leader, leading producers now. Absolutely, yeah. Produced <laughs> like you know Depeche Mode and people like that, you know, um, Claxons and uh, Arctic Monkeys, and like. He was uh, a mainstay of Oldham Street. If you go back to Oldham Street in the mid nineties, uh, there was so much music going. On. They had this thing where like people were DJing, and then people would play drums to DJ, and then that grew into sort of musicians. And that's where I met James. We were playing at uh, what is Matt and Fred's now. I think it's called Collider on a Saturday night. And then there's somebody who said, "Oh, bring some it down." I took me mini mood down, and James was playing drums and. We kind of clicked, you know, and then we started doing, he, I got him into the Toolshed band with me. Cool. And he, he had such a lot of energy in terms of like, oh, let's do this, let's do that, you know, because he was just at university then, you know. I'm a lot, I was a bit older. And then, uh, yeah, he became the drummer in 808 for a while. But before then we had um, Colin Seddon, who was the pop collector I mentioned earlier, from the Hacienda, he was, uh, me and him have been in groups since we were like uh, 16 at school. So we had a, a language and he played on a lot of the 808 record, on some of the 808 records. And he toured with us. He was an amazing musician, play anything and he's got such a knowledge. He, he was brilliant. And he, he ran a thing called Inner Sense Percussion, which you might remember from Manchester. They used to play samba outside Marks and Spencer's all the time. That's right. And he set up the first, you know, some of the first samba groups in Britain. There was one in London and one in Manchester, and that was his. And really? now every village in Britain has got a samba group. Yeah. But back, back in the 80s, that, that was a, a, a new thing. He actually went to Brazil and uh, learned, uh, went in the samba schools in Brazil and learned it properly and wrote a book on it. So when he came back, you know, we got a record called Bombardin, which you can, which is on Spotify. And uh, it's got all this Brazilian percussion on it. And that's him playing on that. Yeah. But uh, it was a great joy, actually, for us to go and play this gig. In, um, we went and played two gigs, uh, a, a thing called the Free Jazz Festival. Free is a cigarette in Brazil. It's like a brand. It's not free jazz, wiggly, wiggly. <laughs> we went to uh, Sao Paulo and uh, <laughs> Rio de Janeiro, and uh, Bjork was on those gigs, actually. It was a Bjork uh, gig, and um, we, you know, it was great to take him back there. In fact, he was, he was over there visiting some friends, and he joined us, uh, you know, he went ahead of us. And it was, it was awesome for me and him to be in Brazil doing that, you know, after all the dreams we had as school kids, trying, listening to all this great music. And, mm -hmm. um, and on that gig, there was like people like Diodato. I don't know if you know, people know who Diodato was, but he had a disco hit in um, the 70s of the 2001 theme. You know, Also Sprax, Zarathustra, or whatever it's called. Yeah. People would know that tune. They play. They still play it now. It's kind of like a sort of jazz funk version of oh. 2001. 
but he's an amazing musician. He's done loads of string arranging on um, fabulous Brazilian records. He's also things like Frank Sinatra records. He, he did strings on Frank Sinatra records. He did things on Earth, Wind and Fire records. Amazing kind of dude. But me and Bjork always bonded over this one record by Milton Nascimento and uh, Diodato had done the strings on that. Amazing sound because there's no violins in it. It's like violas and cellos. It's really deep. And we, we, I loved that record for years. And when first met her, she was like, oh, you've got that record. And we bonded <laughs> wow. over. And she got him in to do Post. Oh, wow. So the strings on Post are by Diodato. Really? So, yeah. So he was at that gig conducted. But years earlier, we had the same manager in, in America, us and Diodato. And, and it's a weird coincidence, because we're playing this club called The Limelight in New York, and there's this bad guy at the front who's a bit older than everyone else, going absolutely crazy caveman ape shit at the front. And it's like, who's, who's that dude kind of thing? And it turns out that that was Diodato, and, and we got invited to his studio the next day. And he was like totally into it. And we, we talked about doing something, but this was before we'd met Bjork. This was like around about when we first went to New York, you know? And uh, I mean, that's the great thing about music sometimes. It's like you, your heroes might come out of the mist and you might get to do something with them. You know, we did a lot of collabor we did a lot of collaborations as, as we went on. And it was such an honor to do things with like, you know, for instance, did a, a remix for David Bowie and instead like grew up on Bowie, you know, it was like a part of my DNA, you know, and it's like to get to do, we did sound and vision, you know. We you got mean to him? Meet, yeah. Oh, wow. uh, we didn't record with him, but we got to meet him when oh, he came to Manchester and we did a photo session. And Quincy Jones, we did a record for Quincy Jones, which is like, I was just totally mind-blowing, you know, that, that, you know, he's such a hero of mine, you know. Uh, this collaborations, I mean, um, obviously Spanish Heart with Bernard Sumner, which yeah. was another favourite of mine, and which uh, made me think, I'm sure I read somewhere, did you do an Acid House version of Blue Monday that used to get played a lot in the Hacienda? Is that... Oh, yeah, that... that it's back to um, 88 uh, when I say like we never used to have a set list, but we always used to do confusion because we sort of knew it was quite easy to stick into the sequencer um, and we knew the numbers on the drum machine, you know, so we used to throw that in the set all the time. And then one evening uh, me, uh, we decided to sort of make a tape of it um, 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 on a cassette. And I remember me and Gerald jumping in a cab, going down to the Hacienda, giving it John De Silva. It was a Wednesday night, hot night. And we'd put all the vocals in. I'm like, it's so hot. It was like a sort of like hot themed version kind of thing. Took it to John De Silva in the DJ booth and he played it. <laughs> it's it's like, like, he'd not even heard it. You know, it's like, what's the chance? You would never do that. Not now, no. That's amazing. Well, that was amazing. Yeah, off a cassette. And that's what that is. That's what that 12 inches. And we've done, yeah, we, we did the, the other side to um, the same kind of reasons, you know. Was that track lost for many years, I also believe? Was it lost? It wasn't, it wasn't lost, but we didn't wasn't treat it. Yeah. We didn't, 
treat it as a properly produced piece of work, you know, because we'd just gone like, oh, we're going down there later. Let's do this, you know, and it was like... Um, so, yeah, it's not the greatest produced track, you know, it's not like a lot of effort went into it. You know, it literally took as long as it took to play it, you know. Yeah. Didn't fuss over it, you know. Yeah. And it's great. Uh, studio, studio time is really expensive then, you know, for us. Or, or you know, I, I went to this place called the School of Sound Recording. There's a studio called Spirit Studio. It's on Tarish Street in Manchester. And it's now it became um, Cosmo, Cosmonaut Bar now. Yeah. 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 And um, there was like one of the first recording schools in, in the world. Even, That's right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So... I was an early student at that, and uh, there was another guy there who was almost the guy who got the most studio time because he had the keys. He was like care the caretaker overnight. It's it's staying there overnight and look after the building. And uh, he was called Danny Spencer. Now he had a hit with uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, uh, Candy Flip. Oh yeah, I remember oh, that. Yeah. Right, yeah, that was Danny. And he was a lot younger than me. He was probably about 16, 17 at the time. But he taught me loads of tech, you know. He, 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 was, he was well into the drum machine thing. And I learned loads off Danny. He, he was, like, in there the whole time. And they were, like, proper, uh, well, hedonistic, you know, him, him and his mate. And they looked like butter wouldn't melt in the mouth. But like, they were, you know, they were, like, you know, literally, if you... There were like a sort of cartoon psychedelic haze around them the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, yeah. So when he kind of moved out of the building because he, he, he was stopped doing the course, I became the guy with the keys. Uh, I got his job of like, so I could, if there was any dead time, we'd be in there overnight and using, using the dead time. And, uh, you know, um, quite often would be, you know, if, if you had to pay for the studio, we wouldn't be able to do it. Though the record shop sometimes pay the, the bills there, you know, so. It's amazing. Yeah. You, you, I mean, now when you can make it on your computer and you've not got the clock ticking, it's a different kind of tension, you know what I mean? I think, you know, when I look back, you know, the, being forced to finish things back then, you know, it's like, oh, we've got a five-hour session. Um, what can what can you finish in a five-hour session? Like, compose, arrange, finish, yeah. you know, in in a tight thing, you know. Uh, it produced an energy that you don't quite get when you go like, oh, I'll come back that, to that later. I mean, it's amazing. I must admit, like, like computers now are amazing. It's amazing that you can have a a whole studio in a box like that, you know. Yeah. But sometimes it's important to remember the the kind of atmospheres and tensions and dynamics of making those old records because records sound different now. You know, they've got a different thing yeah. about them. And vibe is really uh, important. You know, the the sometimes if it's a crappy mix or it's got a great vibe, that can be really valid. Yeah. In fact, a lot of our old records, you know, for instance, New Build, it's not technically great, you know, but it's vibe, you know. It still sounds great to me. And do you still... Yeah, 
you know, you could, if you went back to it, you'd clean it up and you'd do this, that, and the other to it. And you might lose something, you know. Yeah. Because it, how, so, so, you seem to be someone, do you still like to have your hands on like synthesizers on the analog, but do you also use computer as well? Do you use sort of both together? Do you? On yeah, the... I'll use any, anything really. No, okay, um, mate. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to um, try not to use everything that everyone else is using, you know, try to get some unique sounds in there. You know, I think the sampler is, was one of the most important elements of our sound back then and now, you know, to be able to put your own sounds in a machine and create your own textures. And certainly when the sampler came out, you know, we were like, you know, pouring our record collections into the sampler kind of thing in a way that we wouldn't do now kind of thing because of the, you know, all the copyright thing. But I don't think, you know, back then, you know, it wasn't, uh, it took a while for that thing to, you know, nobody thought about that when samplers first came out, you know, yeah. it was like, well, hey, you can do everything, you know. Mm. We listen to like those Art of Noise records and things. It's all about, you know, it's, it's a form of pop art, you know, it's a form of appropriation, you know, like, uh, you know, cutting up old magazines and making a collage, you know, that, that kind of... Uh, reappropriate in the world kind of in yeah. your image kind of thing it's i think it was dead dead valid you know as all that hip-hop stuff was you know i think i remember we were on tommy boy at that time and three feet high and rising came out with the um and that was a point when a lot of the lawyers came out of the, the woodwork and then everything changed you know it was kind of like beyond that point everything had to be sort of like you know put to bed and yeah. yeah it was a definite point in time that you know um but you know we we a lot of our records uh you know for instance that uh only rhyme that bites with mc tunes with the big hollywood strings in it and stuff like you know it's like the, the guy that wrote um big country or whatever yeah he he got most of the money on that record for that for that bit that's so good yeah, and the rest of the pie is cut up into very thin slivers, you know, because, uh, um, you know, it was MC Tunes' record as well. You know. But I mean, great, right? I mean, I love that record. It's kind of pretty bonkers. You know? Yeah. It's not hip-hop. No, he, I, love, I love MC Tunes. I yeah. love, loved him. And you also yeah, have so they, who, who would have thought back then? He was like 18 then. Like really <laughs> fierce little rapper. You know, he's kind of like, yeah amazing energy to it you know yeah and has, yeah. He, 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 like who would have thought that when he was like 50 he'd be like front in a classical <laughs> orchestra at the royal albert hall <laughs> which is what he's been doing you know yeah, yeah. sort of like mm-hmm. doing the happy end of classical thing you know yeah and uh yeah it's kind of quite there's a sort of element of sort of like pride in seeing him up there in, in that those kind of environments and, yeah um, it's great that you're, yeah. you're still in touch with all these people that you've worked with aren't you still in touch with Gerald yeah, yeah. and everybody really it's nice to see that you still have this you know relationship yeah I mean I think it's you know everything everyone who's part of the story values the story you know so, yeah I like that um, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, we've lost a few people on the way, you know, um, 
you know, there's some dark corners of our story kind of thing that one day, you know, I'd like to be able to sort of shed light on kind of thing. But um, we we don't even know sometimes, you know, I'm talking about missing members and stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know, it's very, it's very, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's not all punch in the air success you know there's been a lot of uh it, it's funny because like we could have stopped at many points on the track you know yeah. there's a stubbornness of like no and because it means something to to mean something to us and it means something to people and funnily it's not aged badly you know yeah. you think rave music would age really badly no, hasn't. Um, and somehow there's enough there to re, you know, we've redressed it sometimes. We um, put it together in lots of different ways. Uh, we're putting new stuff in it all the time. You know, one of the biggest challenges now is to put music in the set that map that lives up to the stuff around it. Yeah, you know, to to keep the tension in the rope throughout yeah. a set is uh we spend a lot of time doing that you know um and sometimes you don't know whether that's going to work until the night you know we've had a few you know we take a few risks here and there with new material and stuff and um because we've got quite a musicianly thing on stage you can also almost sort of push that as well you know yeah. uh our current drummer uh carl sharrox is uh He's one of the biggest sort of flag wavers for 808 that you can come across. He lived in uh, Berry when we used to record in Berry uh, in a studio called Square One there, and uh, he had kind of connections with that studio. And he was he was a kid when we were doing that music. But when when we, we I met him doing a gig in Portugal when we were doing a toolshed gig in Portugal, he was playing with a group called Seconical. And I was so impressed by his ability to play with electronic music with no faltering, um, you know, but with feel. And uh, got to chatting to him and he knew our stuff inside out. And then when, we, when he came into the group, he was like, you know, correcting loads of things. He's like, well, that doesn't happen there. This happens there. And it, it was like he'd done a course in AOA or something. So, uh, yeah, he's a, he was like a real... Great find, you know. Yeah. Uh, we have yeah, so many great drummers we've had. Mikey Wilson, who's who's a, a guy who's been playing in Manchester for years. He was in uh, Jazz Defectors, uh, Swing Out Sister. Um, he played for loads of people like Texas and things like that. It's like an amazing session drummer, but he's got such feel. People in Manchester know who he is because when you see him play, you'll never forget him. But Mikey Wilson was, uh, you know, to have him in, in the group at times. In fact, he joined the group. Tunes got him in his group called uh, The Dust Junkies. Oh, yeah. Oh, he, he was the drummer in The Dust Junkies. And Steve Jones, who's this amazing bass player from The Dust Junkies, he was in Biting Tongues for, for, for a short while. It's like if you did a, a Venn diagram of all the people. A family tree, yeah. And all the, all the connections. I mean, for instance, you talk about Paddy Steer, who played bass with us. He's, he was in Biting Tongues for a while, but he was in a group called Yargo. And uh, me and him have been playing since the mid-80s. 
Wow. We've done so many projects together with like, uh, he had a band called, amazing band called Home Life, in which uh, I played keyboards and wind instruments. I was just like a session guy in that, you know, but it was his band and James Ford was in that mm-hmm. um, as, as the drummer for a while. Um, and Seeming Toes in that group, amazing opera singer. And she was in Toolshed. In fact, Home Life and Toolshed were almost identical. Mm. But one was like very yin and one was very yang. Mm. One was all heavy metal and brass and one was kind of acoustics and delicate dynamics. And uh, they were on Ninja Tunes. Uh, I'd like people to check out Home Life, you know, if they're looking stuff. Check out Home Life and Toolshed. Actually, there's quite a few bands called Toolshed, so you have to be careful which door you come in. <laughs> yeah. But none of them can improvise like you can. I don't want to fall. So it's well, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's odd stuff. Um, but it's, again, that's like a group that's been going over twenty years now. And you know, sometimes we do it as a been doing it recently as a three piece. Uh, like, um, and then we've done it as a 28 piece <laughs> with the loads of brass from the Royal Northern College of Music. There was like, you know, sometimes we used to, when I look back at the sort of late nineties and the Labour government was in, we used to get all kinds of sort of arts grants for everything in the back then. It was a golden period. It is, I know. It's like funded activity that brought together so many disparate musician things that then rippled and echoed for many years afterwards. It's, it's such a good uh, ad, advert for that kind of culture. Uh, yeah, the guy that we did this big gig at the Concept Theatre, and we're in there, it was like a workshop thing. We were to work with musicians we'd not worked with before put this thing together and we, we played the Friday night. Saturday night was a similar thing with Knitting Sony, who put, uh, again, another mad group together based on musicians in Manchester. And uh, just over that weekend, the, the stuff that came out of that and the stuff that carried on afterwards was amazing. And the guy that put that together was John McGrath, who now runs uh, Manchester International Festival. Great festival. Yeah, this was back in 1999 or something. Uh, But as I say, the echoes of those kind of events and mad projects that have always gone on in Manchester uh, have been brilliant. But uh, what 808 State kind of allowed me to do was like, you know, we had a place like studio space and uh, that allowed all these kind of things to happen, you know. Yeah. because you had a base and you had um, the equipment and the facilities. And, you know, um, I think that's really important to remember that uh, these spaces and, and cheap space and places to play gigs. Islington Mill has been invaluable to us over the, over the past sort of 15 years, you know, since that place opened, because they, you could do a gig there with very short notice and no costs. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, uh, you know, you can really get experimental. You know, we did, we did so much good stuff at Islington Mill over the years. And they still, yeah, the net connection is unstable. <laughs> yeah, 
So um, did you, so you touched upon Manchester International Festival. Um, have you been involved with any of those events? Have you DJed? Yeah, I did, I did uh, 2017. There was a big uh, opening in Piccadilly uh, with a big yellow runway. I don't know if you remember oh, yes. that. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I was the musical director on that, actually. Wow. In fact, Amazing. you know, the, the brief on that was that we were to work with buskers who normally busk in Piccadilly Gardens, you know. So yeah. what I did was uh, like an electronic score kind of thing and um, made a band from buskers. Uh, and wow. that music, I've, like some of that music ended up um, being on our last day at Wake project. Well, there's an awful lot of it that, that didn't. So um, there was some nice stuff in that. Um, I think the B it might still be on BBC iPlayer. That it's called "What Is the City But the Music." No, sorry, "What Is the City But the the People." Sorry, Freudian slip there. Um, and it was sort of a, an idea that Jeremy Della came up with. Do you know the artist Jeremy He's Della? Great. I love him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, and. Um, Funnily enough, he'd done uh, that brass band project about uh, brass bands playing uh, acid house music uh, a number of years earlier. And they did, you know, uh, three or four of our tunes in that project, the acid brass project. Yeah. So he, he, he was aware of, I didn't get the job because of him. It just kind of, yeah. again, serendipity kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, that acid brass project was. Uh, I ended up going on a trip to to Berlin when that acid brass band played, and it's fairy engineering brass band, uh, which came from the same fairy engineering is in uh, Levenjum slash Burnage where I grew up, and the leader of that band came up to me on that we were at the airport, and I. I didn't kind of let on to them. You could see them with all the cases. I was a bit shy. But once we got on the bus at the other end, they all started talking. And uh, one of the guys was like, I was your brother's apprentice at the post office telephones. And it's like this, the guy who was leading that brass band literally grew up two streets away from me at the same time. Amazing. And, and then uh, my brother had him as an apprentice. And... Um, my gran worked at Ferry Engineering during the war, making aeroplanes, you know. Oh. And there was all these mad connections, you know, and, and it was dead spooky, like hearing your music played in this huge Berlin concert hall with this beautiful <laughs> brass. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get it until I was in a room with it. You know, I heard the recordings and you go like, oh, it's okay. But yeah. being in a room with it, it was goosebumpy. Yeah. That's yeah. my yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that was that was nice. Um, and Jeremy Della was on that, so we had a bit of a sort of. They were proper rock and roll that that band. That's <laughs> most rock and roll band I've ever come across. They're like you know they were boozing at the airport, and you know twenty four hours later they, they weren't stopping. So I love it. And then they went off and did another gig the following day in uh, in Yorkshire somewhere. I think. Hardcore. So this thing, finally, we touched upon the the latest 808 State album, which I really loved. And I just wondered, um, there was a bit of a gap, wasn't there, shall we say, between yeah. 2002's album and this one. 
Was any, I mean, what, what kind of inspired you to, to make a new album? Was it just, did you just feel, did it feel like the right time just to, to begin on a new 808 state? Yeah, it was, it was again kind of about having a place to gather and, and uh, I got, the whole concept of that album we talk about is that, that building where Granada TV was, which I was talking earlier about the other side of midnight, that Tony Wilson programme. That's where, you know, very early doors we were on the TV there. But to me, that place was almost like a, some sort of sacred place because that's like all the pop programmes yeah. growing up, you know, the, the Beatles' first appearance, all those, like, they, they had, like, you know, like early rock and roll stuff on, like, Gene Vincent. And, and, and this was in the studio under, under my feet at that building, you know. Yeah. That studio gave birth to, you know, that joint, the famous Joy Division clip of them playing at Granada, under your feet, you know, as well as... Like, it just stacked up like this sort of amazing battery of music under, you know, I, I felt that place was really special. And we were in this mad control. If you look at the cover of the album, it's kind of, it documents the building as, it, as it's been shut down. They're making it into a hotel now. But that place was kind of littered with technology of the day. You know, if you pulled up the floor of that building, it was literally like, the wires from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all kind of, you know, if it ever fossilised, it'd be fascinating. You know? oh. and, on, and, and the more you looked into it, the more mad it was. Because, like, we always thought the place was a bit haunted, you know, and we get talking to the security guys, they're full of these sort of weird stories and that. And then you find out it's built on a plague pit. Oh. And it was like a, and it was like uh, like a civil war place where they used to keep all the. It was like a barracks in the civil war around, around Castlefield, and then you got all the Roman stuff around oh, Castlefield. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. uh, wow. fantastic. And it was like uh, we used to do all these big gigs in that Castlefield Bowl. So again, it's a kind of sort of sacred space for us because we did all these massive events there as eight to eight. You know, I know. So, I remember all those because when I moved to Manchester towards the late nineties, it seemed to be loads of free events like Castlefield, seeing you guys, yeah. and all this. And then the push was a festival, wasn't it? That was there. That's right. Um, I just went to learn yeah. those. I mean, Deep Cushion was, was a, a directly related to. We did an album called Don Solaris, and we did a launch event at Castlefield when it was first. No, actually, I'm getting that mixed up. The first event at Castlefield Bowl was the Olympic bid uh, for the 2000 Olympics, which was done in 94 or something, I think. And that was the first event there. And we played that. Uh, we were the, you know, they made the announcement and they didn't get the bid. We went on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but it was still a, a big rave, you know. Yeah. And uh, then because we enjoyed that one so much, we decided to hire it for the launch of our Don Solaris album. And the bomb went off the week before uh, the Arndale bomb. Yeah. And they were trying to shut the event down. It's like oh, we can't have it, you know. And they made us sort of double the police presence and all that. We, we did it in the end, but it cost an arm and a leg because we had to increase security, get all the infrastructure of railings and all this kind of thing, you know. And that, that, 
those people now, the people that put that infrastructure in, they are the people that do blue dot and stuff, you know, yeah. like some of the events companies were born of that event, you know, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Um, and then um, because that a year later, they did a gig in the, the bowl to commemorate the bomb thing. And that was called repercussions and then it became deep cushions and they did it every year and that was a brilliant festival for manchester it was all local talent loved it um you know sense of occasion about it you know it was uh, it was uh, it was brilliant that festival for a number of years yeah they've got some great bands on i think yeah so i remember seeing the buzzcocks and the fall for free something like that it was just like wow yeah, oh, that's what I loved about Manchester. I think I saw Mass Attack there for three months for some other. Yeah, it yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great space. Quite a great place. And, and it's, funny, it's just funny now, in uh, as the lockdown was sort of uh, coming back round, that the 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 youth had just taken the place over anyway, hadn't they? Kind of thing in recent weeks, yeah. they kind of just gathered there and you know, uh, put the sound system. Because you know. I think finally, so what kind of what I would say, we, I touched upon you're going to be touring the touring towards the end of the year. So what plans do you have now as we, as things seem to be some sort of light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of the great to do gigs. I've just been actually remastering all the ZTT singles, which doesn't sound like a lot of music, but it's actually hours and hours of uh, B-sides and um, I think it's 50 odd tracks, you know, so it's actually quite a big job and they, they, they've all been remastered at Abbey Road um, because they've come out over such a time span that if you put them all together, some are louder and quieter and some are older and dustier and yeah. we've tried to sort of bring it all into a, a certain modern day standard. Um, not not messing with the mixes, but just remastering some of them. So and re, uh, you know, some of them have never been digital before. People will have had them as twelve inches or seven inches, or you know. So that that's been a big job. Um, so that's uh, we're rolling a different one out every Friday till September. There's another greatest hits coming out in September because uh, we had one called Blueprint, but due to some sort of contractual thing, that's now been deleted because the back catalogue's been sold to another company. And we don't have any say over that. It's kind of, you know, it's just what goes on in the background. Uh, but I've been kind of uh, what's shepherding it along kind of thing, along yeah. with some other people. And... Um, so that's happening but at the same time we're still sat on a lot of new music so uh, it's a question of i think you know over the summer we hope to be releasing uh new music as well but we, we probably won't do it in the form of an lp this time you know that's what's changing you know? mm -hmm. um yes. like last like transmission suite the last album we did in 2018 is almost like a double album. There's like 13 tracks on it or something. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's so against the grain to do that. You know, it's kind of like most people just put out a single now, or maybe they put three tracks out or four mm -hmm. tracks, but they don't, they don't pile it on. Like it's like, here's a mother load of, and you're lucky I got it down to 13 tracks because like, 
It's been a long time. way bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. So, you must um, be the album though. It's such a good album. You must have been pleased with it. How it turned out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it has a balance to it. I think it has a yeah. flavour to it. Now, and that was to do with shaping it at the end rather than um, everything that we made in that room. You know, we made a lot of music in that room, and then shaped at the end. It was like, well, let's leave all that stuff off, and then it becomes this. You know, it came together really at the last minute in terms of uh, um, a kind of style, stylistic thing, you know, because uh, it, was, it was about almost like a DJ set, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's almost a return to a pure electronic thing, I think, would you say? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, it's kind of like a system music again. It's like a load of sequences and things set up on tables it's not so much uh, there's a sort of almost a, an element of new build in it i think you know that that it comes from a system of making music a little bit uh when i say that it's kind of like you know when you're putting it to the computer there's accidents in it and little foibles in it and yeah um that that was deliberate uh trying to breathe personality and life into electronic music is kind of a bit of an obsession, you know, because it's so easy to not, not to do that these days. You know, it's easy to just fall, you know, take, you get, you need that awareness has come over the years, you know, of, of kind of what makes a track like an earwormy kind of go back to it thing, you know, yeah. not a one time DJ, passing in a mix kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but I understand DJing better than I ever did, I think, at this point in time. You know, I've been over the years. Um, I've always DJed, you know, but not the same way as Darren and Andrew DJ, which is much more professional kind of. They were DJing when they were like 12 in the Salvation Army. You know, they, they're proper DJs, you know. I'm... I'm I love music and I, I play what I, what I love, you know, and, and, but I find myself in the situation of DJing a lot more now through the technology, which is um, what you can get on the computer now that helps you mix, you know. I was never a mixer, you know, but now technology helps me do that. Uh, Andrew, Andrew is always uh, proud of his analog ability to mix him and he's kind of quite um, you know he, he he doesn't like the computer thing as you know but I, I, I don't have a choice you know so I just <laughs> don't think about it but uh, you know um, I also love putting music together in different odd ways you know I do a radio show on reform radio called the Jazz Cruise Lifeboat Assembly and because uh, it's got jazz in the title, it probably puts a lot of people off. But I, it's what it is, is, uh, you know, how to put great music next to each other and make uh, contrasts and, and genre busting. I know a lot of people do that. A lot of people do it more these days because the way we can access all this music. But there's a if you can do it with a bit of flair and a bit of... Um, storytelling and um and i think hopefully people can tell there's a love of music in it 
you know, people like Giles Peterson have proved that kind of uh, thing really adequately over the years, you know, and it's, it's kind of in that area, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's all on Mixcloud if anyone wants to go and visit that. Um, but yeah, yeah, music's pretty consuming, isn't it? <laughs> It certainly is, yeah. Well, I say it's been a pleasure to speak to you today, and so I look forward to new music from yourself or radio shows or whatever you're going to be working on next. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today. It's been, it's been really great. Yeah, well, hopefully we can uh, be in a sweaty room to the point with, um, you know, the proper decibels applied to music, you know. I can't wait. Yeah. When the music shakes your organs, you know, that's the thing I've missed. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. It's been really, it's been some fascinating stories. Um, it's just Thank been you. Really-